This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for February 14th. The Liberal government says it has suspended all contracts with GC Strategies, the company at the heart of the current ArriveCan controversy. We'll talk to Federal Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan, and the Power Panel reacts. Plus, home sales were up last month, suggesting the housing market may be turning a corner. The senior economist at the Canadian Real Estate Association breaks down the new numbers. We begin today with an update on the controversy surrounding the ArriveCan app. The federal government says it has suspended all of its contracts with GC Strategies, the small IT company at the heart of the Auditor General's damning report. As first reported in La Presse, the federal government has awarded GC Strategies more than 100 contracts. Radio Canada verified those contracts today, finding they have amounted to more than $239 million dollars since 2015. Overall, 66% of the company's federal contracts came from the Canada Border Services Agency. And we found out today that all federal government contracts with GC Strategies were suspended this November. In a letter to the RCMP, Conservative leader Pierre Polyev asked it to immediately expand its existing criminal investigation into the development of the app. The Prime Minister has said the RCMP and CBSA are conducting internal investigations into any alleged wrongdoing linked to the app, but does not, that does not seem to be enough for opposition leaders. A company that had never before received contracts from the federal government started getting an avalanche of contracts just three weeks after this Prime Minister took office. The company, uh, in fact, got a quarter of a billion dollars for IT, even though it admits it doesn't do IT. Let's talk about what that $60 million for ArriveCan could have bought. 125 affordable homes, 800 nurses hired. Instead, this Prime Minister spent this money on an app that doesn't work and no one uses. Seamus O'Regan is the Minister of Labour and he joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show. David, thanks. I, I want to get to your announcement from today in just a second, uh, but I, ha- I want to ask you first about ArriveCan. I know this is not your department, so I don't expect you to know all of the fine print, but we've seen this reporting that a company that was very small got some contracts that added up to a very big number, north of $250 million. And there's an insinuation today from the opposition leader that maybe there's a connection to the Liberals. What's your reaction to, to those allegations and your response to these revelations? Yeah, not to debate insinuations out of, in the House or out of the House, to be honest with you. I, I, look, uh, I just know that uh, Minister LeBlanc has been very clear in the House, out of the House, um, you know, that we will be as transparent as we can be about everything, that everything uh, we have followed due process on this. Uh, if anything went wrong, we will investigate it. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that the head of the CBSA is on top of things as well. Look, I, I think that the, the right people are on the job. Let's just let this play out before we give into insinuations and allegations. There were some findings in the Auditor General's report, though, Minister, about GC strategies, inviting people to whiskey tastings, inviting them out to dinners, and, and some questions about violations potentially of ethics rules and, and conduct rules. When you read those revelations and saw the reporting, what was your reaction as a cabinet minister uh, who, who's now facing the heat over this as, as part of the government? Listen, I, I, I don't think my reaction to allegations or insinuations matters, to be honest with you. I think ultimately let this play out. Uh, sometimes this does not always conform to a 24-7 news cycle, but it does take time and to be thoroughly investigated. It will be thoroughly investigated. Okay. I, I want to switch to your announcement today of rebranding the Climate Action Incentive Payment yes. to the Canada Carbon 
rebate. What are you hoping to accomplish with the name change? I think accuracy, to be honest with you. Look, I mean, we came out, we do this every year when we let Canadians know how much money they will be getting back in what is now the Canada Carbon Rebate. Um, only because, you know, the, the old name's been eight years old. I don't, I, you know, I think a rebrand is probably appropriate. Um, but that's not the point. I mean, I think the point is accuracy of information. Like, you know, the way that people talk about it is they refer to carbon. The way that people talk about it, and financially, the way this is, is happening is it is a rebate, right? Um, and we do hope in incense, as in, you know, uh, incentive. It doesn't incent the kind of um, market behavior that we want, which is that uh, people pay for things that have a lower price on pollution, but, you know, they are not out of cost. I mean, you, I think you know as a Newfoundlander, but... You know, it, it's bred in me rate mitigation, and that means affordability. That means you know what we faced as a province, the, the, the specter of, of everybody's power bills doubling and tripling, and, and how that, that just, not just shattered people, but you know, dominated our news cycle, not just 24-7, but for 10 years. Um, it is ingrained in me that you cannot do any of the things that we need to do in this country on the backs of taxpayers and ratepayers. Um, but at the same time, we've got to figure out how we lower our emissions. So you know, we've always said that this is not perfect, but we think it's a fairly elegant and market-sensible sense of, you know, solution to try and figure this out. But nothing fundamentally changes with the program. It's still no. the same amount of money with That's the right. same criteria going to the same people in the same way. It's just a shift in, in branding. So like, what does that really do to change people's perceptions and understanding of this? I mean, if they weren't noticing hundreds of dollars going into their account a couple of times a year... What makes you think it will be more popular now? No, look, it, it, the reason we came out and did a press conference today is because we do it every year to let, let people know, you know, that it is $1,200 that, that families will get, a family of four in Newfoundland and Labrador, $600 for a single senior. We just announced those numbers, but, you know, it was a convenient time to say, let's just make sure that what, we, what it is is a little more accurate. Um, and, and, you know, I'm hoping that it, it will be by referring this to what it is, for what it is, which is a rebate, uh, making sure that people, eight out of ten families, get more money back and just making sure that people know that and understand it. Look, that's a lot of money. $1,200 a year for a family of four, $600 for a single senior is a lot of money. People are using that money. People are banking on that money. Um, and, you know, the bottom line is it's, you know, very catchy what you hear behind us in the House of Commons and out and about about tax, tax, tax. But, and I get it, but, you know, the bottom line is what happens to the money that people do rely on? There is a redistribution that, if, that takes, you know, takes place. The big polluters do pay more, and, and lower income and many middle-class Canadians get this rebate. So if there's no price on pollution, there's no rebate. And a lot of people, 8 out of 10, do better with it. So it's just, we've got to make sure that we get that message across, because frankly, those are the facts. It's not spin. Those are the facts. And we've got to make sure we put forward that, I think, very sensible argument. But, you know, getting your message across on this, uh, even supporters uh, of these policies say it was undermined by the carve-out for home heating oil, which I know applies nationally, but disproportionately benefits uh, our home part of the country in Atlantic Canada. And then they also look at what happened today when Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau had to clarify multiple times and even after his scrum what he said or meant to say uh, when he was speaking in Montreal about the federal government no longer funding roads. I mean, what, what do issues like that do to your ability to, to explain yourself uh, on simple things when, when you have the, to clean up these messes kind of, of, of your own making? There's no, there's no mess in what we did with, with home heating oil by putting a pause on that. There's no mess in that at all. I refute it. Um, you know, if people want to be Puritans about this, I, I, would, I would venture to say that just about every single national financial or social policy in this country 
has specifics to how it is affected on the ground. In fact, even the price on pollution, any province could do whatever they want with it. As long as they're meeting their targets, we'll go along with it. The backstop is there because it is a backstop uh, if a province comes to us. So I refute that. Home heating oil is a big issue in Atlantic Canada. It's a big issue in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a big issue in Nova Scotia. And people could not afford the $24,000 it costs to get a heat pump. So why should we be hurting them as a result? No, I, this, the, the, this gives them the lift. So when people say it's a, I say it's actually a strength that we were able to see things as they are on the ground, make changes in the goal of lowering emissions. This is a temporary pause for three years. This is how we conduct national politics in this country. It's not, you know, strict principled, must be the same cookie cutter approach. That doesn't work in Canada. It's when politicians, other people, people in provinces say, we're slightly different over here. In Labrador, we're different than Newfoundland. In Northern Alberta, we're different than Southern Alberta. And, and you make changes in order to affect a better result. That, to me, is a strength. But anyway, on to the second part of your question. No, I'm guilty of not being clear in asking a question about a lack of clarity from your colleague, Minister Gilbo. Your, your whole news conference today to announce this was dominated largely with questions about what he meant about the federal government's uh, role in, in paying for roads on the comments he said in Montreal. I mean, he, he basically said the existing road network is fine, so the federal government wouldn't be investing in that. Clarified that to say he was talking about big projects like the, the one in Quebec City and has later clarified as saying he was only talking about the one in Quebec City. I, I mean, how do you think commuters in the 905, people in central Newfoundland who just had the Bishop's Falls, the Grand Falls, Windsor uh, highway expanded, are viewing comments like that when there are infrastructure needs across the country for commuting, for transit, and, and, and for economic corridors that, that people are hoping the federal government plays a role in? Indeed. And we're, we're twinning a big section of the Trans-Canada Highway on the island of Newfoundland. Um, we had a huge part to play in the, in the Trans-Labrador Highway as well. So, I mean, that's just out my way. As the Prime Minister reiterated today in question period, Champlain Bridge. I was just down in Windsor, actually, a couple of months ago. Saw the Gordie Howe Bridge being built. So, look, EV's got to drive on something. You know, um, and, and they drive on roads. So we will be involved in roads, as we always have been. There's no change in policy. Um, you know, Minister Gibault, as he reiterated time and again, he was taken out of context. Uh, I, I wasn't there for the full speech. I, I take him at his word. And, and the Prime Minister reiterated our policy today in question. There's a criticism, though, from Premier Ford, who uh, your government has worked with quite closely on things, saying your government doesn't care if, if commuters are, are sitting in gridlock. And, and Daniel Smith also criticized uh, the government, which is... Uh, well, not unfamiliar territory for her and Minister Gilbo, but how do you push back against that when the big, one of your big provincial allies is upset with what Minister Gilbo had to say today? Well, you know, Premier Ford is somebody who we have you know, found agreement with time and again, no question, but he's also, you know, progressive conservative, and, you know, Daniel Smith is the United Conservative Party. I mean, these are, these are different parties, and, and when, they, you know, when they come out and they see an opportunity, a political opportunity, they're going to take that political opportunity. You know, Minister Gilbo came out and said completely taken out of context. This is what I meant. Prime Minister reiterated our policy hasn't changed. And we have clear examples of where, we're, you know, the proof is in the pudding. We're doing the work now. Labor Minister Seamus O'Regan, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks. Housing sales are showing signs of recovery, according to new data from the Canadian Real Estate Association. January home sales are up 22% over last year, the largest year-over-year -year gain since May of 2021. And the actual national average home price was $659,395. That's up to 7.6% from January of last year. So what does this mean for Canadians? What does it mean about affordability? And what does it say about the strength of the housing market going forward? Sean Cathcart is Senior Economist at the Canadian Real Estate Association, and he joins me now. Sean, it's good to meet you. Thanks for joining us. 
So, so two good months here, like December saw a jump in sales, and you were cautioning not to read too much into that. What should we read into it now that the January sales are up too? Is this a trend? How should Canadians see it? Yeah, I was trying to sort of borrow from the Bank of Canada to say don't get too ahead of yourself, but uh, two months in a row, that's more of a trend than one month, and uh, it, it actually advanced further. Um, the one thing I would say would be, you know, a lot of the year-over-year stuff that you're, the numbers that look big are a base effect from how weak it was a year ago. Yeah. Uh, but certainly it's, it's, it's getting going. It looks like it's getting going earlier than we would have thought. We, we have more certainty maybe over the trajectory of interest rates. I know, I know the, the Bank of Canada says not to get too excited, but the markets are baking this in and you're seeing you know, some lo- mortgage rates are, are coming down a little bit. Is that lessened anxiety? Is that fueling some of this, do you think? You know, it might be. I'm not sure where the uh, where the normal consumer is. Uh, we track this stuff daily, uh, mm. and so uh, you know, from a month ago when markets kind of were getting ahead ahead of themselves a little bit, uh, talking about like you know the first cut for sure in April. There's going to be five or six this year. Now it's not till June or July, and maybe there's only going to be three. Yeah. So uh, it moves around a lot. Uh, I think the Bank of Canada is very going to be very happy that expectations are moving in that direction because one of their big fears is this market. Uh, really getting firing on all cylinders again this year, even with rates still as high as they are. Right. So we, we are seeing a, a price jump, though, right? Price is a, the national average home price going up 7.6% year over year in January. Is that just because of how bad it was a year ago? Or is there something else happening here? Part of it's uh, how bad it was a year ago. Part of it is compositional. When you've got markets uh, in and around Toronto and Vancouver, where a regular family bungalow is a million bucks, and there was nothing going on last year. And that demand is what's coming back in big numbers. Because, of course, the further you fall, uh, the, the more room you have to bounce. Um, you know, Calgary and the Maritimes are, are doing just fine. Mm. Uh, but they have less room for growth. So when you've got those expensive, relatively expensive homes that aren't mansions, uh, but they are expensive in terms of a, the broader Canadian sample coming back in, that can boost the average uh, over and above what prices are actually doing. Uh, our constant uh, quality measure is still pretty flat year over year. So uh, help me understand this. Like, is it the big expensive real estate markets traditionally in Canada that are coming back? We're talking GTA, lower mainland of British Columbia, Calgary. I mean, what are, what are we talking about here? Where, where, where is this growth and activity coming from? Well, I think in, in the fullness of time, it'll be everywhere. But mm. uh, it seems like in the last few months, it's, it's in and around Toronto, uh, in, in more expensive places, that are really, how do I put it, crawling themselves out of the basement. So yes, those, some of those numbers look big on a year-over-year basis, but compared to somewhere like in Alberta or the Maritimes, where um, markets have been far less impacted by higher rates, it just sort of, you know, I, I almost want to say in Calgary, they didn't get the memo. Um, so there's less scope for that to even go higher. They're already almost setting records. So uh, it's really a mixed bag right now. It's it's a mixed bag of data, um, but it's definitely the green shoots we were sort of looking for that we normally look for in February and March, uh, sort of showing right. up in December and, and January in a, in a year where we know there's a ton of pent-up demand out there and population growth that looks like a hockey stick in the last year. Uh, it's, it's hard to see how there won't be a ton of demand for housing this year. Right. So, so I actually had a, a real estate agent knock on my door yesterday to ask if I wanted to list my house. And I was like, no, thanks. Not, I don't have that in me right now. But you said that you know, this, these trends suggest a market that, that's starting to turn a corner. What kind of timeline do you think we're on there? And, and what should people expect in terms of this to progress? 
Well, I be careful of my uh, comms people. They don't like me to say shoot off the starting gun. So I'll say wave the green flag uh, for the uh, spring market. But I've seen years like this before. 2020 was one after coming out of the stress test. And of course, that all went pear-shaped with COVID. But um, I have seen this before. You know, whether it's Valentine's Day, which is today, we start to see the green shoots show up after, or whether it's uh, the 1st of March or March break or Easter, somewhere in the next couple of months, we're going to start to see a lot of listings come out. And I think that they're all going to start selling. Mm. Um, and I, I, mean, I hope that there's listings and then we just have more activity. We get more people into housing because I know the demand is there. Um, we've had two years of people not flowing into this ownership market. Of course, the rental market is predictably gone uh, completely bonkers. Uh, and so we want to get people flowing back in that direction on the continuum and sort of balancing things out, uh, ideally. And uh, so ideally, we get a lot of listings because there's not a lot out there right now. How do we reconcile, you know, this, this jump in sales, the jump in prices with the conversation about lack of affordability and houses being too expensive for people? And it seems like and, and high interest rates, you know, have taken a lot of the, the, the financial power away from people. Yet here we are. Yeah, the way you can reconcile that is by looking at the homeownership rate in Canada, which has been falling for the last 13 years. Uh, and so how do regular people afford these prices? Well, more and more regular people don't. Uh, and so that's why we've been advocating heavily. I mean, internally here at Korea for seven years on this supply side is the only solution to build like you've never built before. Hmm. Um, I think that that conversation needs to evolve. Now, if you look at some of the numbers that are coming out of CMHC and others saying that we need to scale our current construction by like 250% starting yesterday, that's not possible with the status quo, with, you know, building techniques where, my, you know, my grandfather could pop out of a time machine from 1955 and start swinging a hammer. I think we need to evolve yeah. that conversation into innovation uh, in the construction space uh, because unless we start building hundreds of thousands of units a year, more than we are right now, this problem isn't going away. Sean, uh, we appreciate you joining us today. That's Sean Cathcart with the Canadian Real Estate Association. Thanks so much for your time. Anytime. The company at the heart of the Auditor General's scathing report on that beleaguered ArriveCan app is making headlines again today. As first reported in La Presse and verified by our Radio Canada colleagues, GC Strategies has been awarded 129 contracts since 2015, totaling more than $239 million. Overall, 66% of those contracts came from the Canada Border Services Agency. The Procurement Minister says all contracts with GC Strategies were suspended in November 2023, around when the Auditor General began her audit. But Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has written to the RCMP asking that they, quote, immediately expand your existing criminal investigation. And all of this blew up in question period today. A quarter of a billion dollars? WTF. Use uh, parliamentary language, please. Where's the funds? This Prime Minister spent this money on an app that doesn't work and no one uses. How does the Prime Minister look Canadians in the eyes? The Auditor General has uh, highlighted some very concerning questions that need to be answered. And that's why uh, we're expecting and supporting all relevant authorities uh, to follow up on uh, these irregular contracting and this uh, perhaps breaking of the rules. 
All right, it's time to bring in the power panel in this. Amanda Alvaro is a former Liberal Party communication strategist. And here with me in studio, Jordan Likeness is a former NDP strategist. Tim Powers is a former strategist for conservative parties. And Sherelle Evelyn is the managing editor of The Hill Times. Um, Amanda, uh, let's start with you. Um, this was a rough day with the Auditor General's report for the government. This reporting of this very small company getting very large dollar amounts over an eight-year period. Uh, what do you make of this, and how potentially damaging is this uh, for your crowd and for the government? Well, I don't. I don't think anyone could refer to this as a very small company. Uh, this is a. This should be a very profitable company after some of these yeah. figures came out. I mean, it's just so alarming because. Uh, from basic accounting measures that were overlooked to contracting practices that were just entirely dismissed. To my knowledge, and I could be wrong on this, but uh, I was under the assumption that there was a procurement threshold. So contracts yeah. over a certain dollar amount would mm -hmm. have to go to a bidding process. The fact that that entire mechanism broke down uh, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars uh, is just such a huge question mark. They, they couldn't even find out who actually awarded the contract in the end or the multiple contracts in some cases. So it's, it's an enormously difficult position for the government to be in um, because, as you know, this happens or maybe you don't know, this happens bureaucratically, right? Mm -hmm. Like these contracts are provided through the bureaucracy. There's multiple levels uh, that are involved in contracting or awarding contracts of this nature. Many times, well, you know, the government is aware, obviously, of the outcome of it, which was an app that, you know, there were many glitchy problems with the app, but for a time, the app was essential for travel. It was essential to get people across the border. It was essential for trade, and it was housing very private data and information about people, so it was critical that it was done right. The point is, though, at the contracting phase, a lot of that doesn't get up to the political uh, leaders involved. The ministers don't know, to a certain extent, beyond the fact that this has been mandated and required, they don't know the the minutiae around the contracting itself, but they are the ones that are going to have to answer for it. So it becomes, of course, mm -hmm. another very bad day for the government. Right. And, and Tim, to, to, to underline that mm -hmm. point, uh, the Auditor General has not found any political connection. We do know that uh, two civil servants, Antonio Utano, who is the Director General of the Canada Revenue Agency, and Cameron McDonald, an ADM for Health, who were in the Canada Border Services Agency at the time, they have been suspended without pay. And I called it a small company in the beginning because it's anywhere between two and five employees. So it sounds like they get it and subcontract it out. But this is as the revelations grow, the problem grows here. Yeah, and interestingly, according to some of the reporting there, there's some uh, impressive finders fees or commissions that they mm -hmm. charge to get all of this. But you would have had to have thought, Amanda, everything that Amanda described is right in terms of the contracting, but you would have thought somewhere some red lights would have had to have gone off. 66 contracts from one box. 66% of the 66, contracts. From one sorry, 66% yeah. of the contracts representing the amount of money that it did. Somebody somewhere was likely seeing this. The bigger question is, yes, as Amanda said, well, you know, ministers are already in there doling out the dollars, and let's be fair on them on that. Uh, what kind of culture 
does exist in that place that people feel they can get away with this. Uh, that's the bigger problem here. And you might have thought that at some point somebody must have said in a memo that made its way up at least to a senior um, bureaucratic official that could have gone to the minister's office saying, hey, you need to be worried about this. I mean, it just really defies logic how a person, a, for, a firm with four employees somehow can generate $250 million in gross revenue. Yeah, That's I, crazy. I just want to double check that it is 66% and not 66 contracts. That's why I'm looking at the paper. Okay. But, but, you know, uh, Jordan, on this, it's CBSA. It's an agency. Does that change how we look at this? It's not, you know, straight out of the Department of Health or straight out of public services, uh, you know, line department with the minister at the top. It's somewhat arm's length. How does that play into I this I don't think all? it makes any difference yeah. here in terms of how this is going to have some ramifications for the government. And unfortunately for the government, I also don't think the fact that there isn't at this point any sort of direct political connection um, it's still going to fall back on them because this happened on their watch, right? Yeah. So this is something that I think it is going to be a political problem for the liberals, a headache that they're going to have to deal with. But I think Tim makes a really excellent point around culture. And I think, you know, we kind of know a little bit uh, what the culture of contracting out is within the government. We've had huge growth in that. You know, even mm -hmm. if you take the period uh, 2016 to 2022, contracting mm -hmm. grew by 75% in that period alone. It was up another 25% last year. When contracting out becomes the norm within government, then I think you do actually get a situation where things like this become a little bit more likely because there's just that much more money flowing out the door for things that potentially arguably really could and should be done in-house. And, and the other thing I would say on CBSA is that this is an agency, as you point out, that's arm's length, but right. it's also the only policing-linked agency in Canada that has no independent civilian oversight. So... Mm. It is true that this is a known issue, and the, the lack of oversight is an issue with CBSA, and uh, it really makes you wonder what they're going to find when they start digging a little bit deeper here. Well, uh, and Cheryl, a lot of people are digging deep into this now, right? The RCMP has confirmed that they're investigating, not really over arrive can uh, the cast of characters overlaps but like a uh, because of another co issue raised by Butler AI uh, about contracting involving uh, the you know Mr. Utano and, and Mr. McDonald and now Pierre Polyev has written the letter and we know CBSA has done its own finding which MPs have called scary because they've been able to read some of the report where does this go well, it's not going to go away. We know that much. No. <laughs> and it shouldn't. I mean, this is something that, as everybody's already articulated, it's something that it, it doesn't make sense at the outset. You can't, everybody seems a little too gobsmacked that it happened. Um, nobody seems to know how it happened. There's no real, uh, we haven't really seen that accountability. Yes, there's those two people who've been suspended uh, without pay, but we still don't, but the Auditor General was not able to find, you know, any through line really to who is responsible for this. You have parliamentary committee that are investigating. We've seen this at the Government Operations Committee. I believe we've also seen it at the Public Accounts uh, Committee. Um, probably will end up in, in other committees as well. Um, it's And it's a good place, you know, politically for people to poke mm -hmm. at because mm -hmm. this is this is government waste. It's government um, not being accountable. Um, it's all of those things. Like un And unlike some of the other, uh, you know, whether you want to call them scandals or not, that the government has faced, this is, I think, something that that the general public can really wrap its head around. Uh, you know, they may have actually known what mm -hmm. ArriveCan was. They would have actually used it. Mm. Um, you know, as much as they say the, you know, we've heard it from Jagmeet Singh and we've heard Pierre Polyev say it time and time again. It's an app nobody used. I mean, I'll put my hand up. I use it. it. Yeah. I, yeah. I still use <laughs> it. Um, you know, shaves a few minutes when you cross the border. 
But it's something that people can look at and say, they spent how much money on what, and they don't know why, and they gave it to who. And it's just puts, it sends up all those red flags flares and it's something that they can make a lot of hay out of and they should because it is of course um it is serious as to the fact that nobody knows where this money went and so i hope that everybody continues to take it seriously but we are kind of seeing like the memification of this a bit mm. and i don't know if that's necessarily the right way to go about it when it is so serious no because look, look amanda i know people talk about the eighty thousand dollars as the starting point for this that was never going to be the final cost right once you brought in the call centers for support and you had to do mm-hmm. privacy and data storage it was going to grow, but the issue, as the Auditor General spelled out, is that there was no budget, there was no plan, PHAC wanted this, put it over to CBSA, there was no joint coordination, and now we have investigations and allegations that, and we have to be careful because I don't have parliamentary privilege, but that could lead to corruption uh, findings because suspending people without pay at this level of authority in the federal government is rare, and for the RCMP to investigating and all contracts to be suspended is rare. Uh, so there is a, a significant level of, of individual risk here and, and political risk for the government, depending on where this goes. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with everything that the panelists have said uh, so far. The one thing that I take a little issue with um, is what Jordan mentioned around the increase in contracting. It's true that there is an increase in contracting, but I think we have to be careful to suggest um, to people who are watching, that there are, there are those individuals sitting inside various levels of government that have the skills or expertise to create something like this. Like, whether you like the, the ArriveCan app or not, I can guarantee you that there was nobody sitting in any level of government who could have created it. It had to be contracted out. The issue is how you contract out. And when you're talking about a dollar figure of that magnitude, you would expect that there would at the very least be a competitive process. From that, you would expect that after the bidding is done and the competitive process is underway, that there would be a clear set of deliverables, that there would be a scope of work, that there would be invoicing that was very detailed. None of those things existed. So it's a breakdown, not just the fact that it had to be done because it was mandated for many reasons, many good reasons, but the fact that once it had been mandated, the breakdown around the fiscal management of it, the contracting of it, and just basic principles around how you execute a program that you've been contracted to do becomes the issue. How that translates politically is that people just look at the big dollar amount and their their minds are blown. They can't believe that anyone would spend anywhere near something uh, to that magnitude. Yeah, and Tim, is, it's, I mean, a man has a point. It's not like there's a, a fleet of app developers, you know, necessarily sitting inside the government of Canada. I mean, I don't know what that capacity is, but the, the way there has been this culture of using outside consultancies in this government so much so that they've identified it themselves as an area for cost cutting as they try to bring, you know, the, the, the fiscal situation back into order. But with this particular one, uh, this company, according to the Auditor General, is they were involved in drafting the contracts <laughs> that they later won and then subcontracted out to other people because they don't actually do the work, which is a heck of a way to get a slice of the pie when you don't actually bake the pie. Boy, I wish I could do that, and I don't yeah. do any work with, with, uh, with government, I'm sure. We all wish we could do that. <laughs> though, look, look. the other issue with the politics of this, David, it, it harkens back, though Though they are different in terms of, of, of construct, to ad scam with uh, the Kretschmer yeah. and liberals. When this comes at a time where our government is seen to be at the end of its life, it doesn't matter that 
to date, there are no links to uh, political figures here. It just neatly serves up uh, a pot of uh, a pinata for the opposition to whack. And they're going to whack it and whack it and whack it because, again, with the public, mm -hmm. you know, the narrative that Pierre Polyev is presenting, the narrative Mr. Singh strangely presents, even though he has an arrangement with the liberals, is they're old, they're tired, they're corrupt, they're self-interested. And people can use this void of all the facts as as a proof point. Yeah. So the timing of this couldn't be worse for the Liberals. I mean, this week, look, in our poll, 19 points back nationally, all the way behind, mm -hmm. and they're dealing with this, and Stephen Guibault, uh, and we're only at uh, Wednesday. Who knows what it'll be like by Friday. Yeah, Bruce Anderson had a line on Twitter today, so sometimes it feels like, uh, some days it feels like the Liberals are just set, teeing the Conservatives up. And, and, and you know, Jordan, on, on this, like, wh whether there's, like, a corruption element to this that involves a government. There is a competence element to Absolutely. this that involves the government. Five ministers announced the launch of ArriveCan when they announced it, because they all had shared responsibility for it, but nobody seems to have had responsibility for <laughs> following up, right? Yeah, well, and I, I think that that's exactly the point that you're going to see the opposition hammering away at as things continue here. If there, if there mm -hmm. isn't that direct political link, you're, this is going to become an issue of competence, of, of responsibility, and it's one that, you know, for, for better or for worse for the Conservatives, they're going to be able to make a lot of hay with it. Sherelle, quick last word, and then we're going to take a break. Just to point out really quickly that the, you know, the, the Auditor General, we're talking a lot about there's no being no political links. The Auditor General said that's not what she looked at. She's yeah, only right, looking yeah, yeah, at... Yes, the there's no service. known, there's, there's no known, known links. links. I mean, who knows where this yeah. goes, right? Uh, but, but at this point, the facts that we have at this point in time, that is, that is a good point to, to end on there. Thank you so much to the Power Panel, Sherelle Evelyn, Jordan Likeness, Tim Powers, and Amanda Alvaro. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.